A good afternoon and welcome to our afternoon service. So glad that you are able to watch this online and uh, extend a warm welcome to you. We're sorry that we aren't unable because of the current restrictions to meet in person in the afternoon, but we are committed to the teaching of the Word of God. We're a church that loves the Word of God. We want to pray it, we want to preach it, we want to read it, we want to sing it. And so it's important that we gather under the Word of God. Let us pray before we come to God's holy Word. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that it is living, that it is operative. Give me the Holy Spirit's help, I pray, to speak well of Jesus, in whose lovely name I pray. Amen. So we're in John's Gospel in our afternoon service, John chapter 1, verse 35. It's when Jesus is calling his first disciples. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. John is very deliberate, very strategic, very careful. John is not just throwing up slides or pulling off some pictures from his phone and telling them some stories. It should be obvious, even from just a cursory examination of John's Gospel, that John is very deliberate in the way that he puts things together. You may have noticed that he is telling us here of the first week of our Lord's ministry. In verse 19, it's the testimony of John. In verse 29, it is the next day. In verse 35, it is the next day again. And we'll see when we come to verse 43, the next day after that. And in chapter 2, the third day. So John is tracking very carefully, very deliberately, day after day, what is happening here. We all love John's Gospel, but if you've studied John's Gospel, you know that when we move into chapter 2, we come into the book of signs. And there are seven of those signs. The other half is sometimes called the book of glory. And in addition to the seven signs, the seven miracles, the first of which is turning the water into wine, that wedding at Cana in Galilee, we're going to also have seven I am statements. The Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the door, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Seven statements so clearly. John is being very careful. John is being very deliberate. John is organising things. Seven signs. Seven I am statements. In chapter one, day by day. And when he gets to the end of the book in chapter 20, he lays out this very explicit purpose for his gospel. Many more things could be written, but these things were written down so that you may believe, and by believing you would have life in his name. And all of that is to remind you and convince you that John is very strategic in what he does and how he does it in organising his gospel. And like a good author, he puts the material together with much care and intentionality. All that is preface to bring you to this passage. So that you'd be aware that surely something very significant is going on when we have here the first recorded words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John. With as careful as John is with everything else, surely he has put these here, the first words of our Lord Jesus, for a reason. This is what Jesus says. Surely John is laying out for us something not only of what Jesus said, but it's presenting it in this way. But it's because it's going to be applicable for followers of Jesus at all times, in all places, including us this afternoon. In other words, he may be talking to Andrew. But John the Evangelist puts this first because it is also Jesus, through John's Gospel, talking to you. I want you to notice three things that Jesus says. 22 words in English, all told. But these three things, these 22 words say a lot. Look, <coughs> first at verse 38. There's a lot going on here in the background and we tend to overlook it. That before Jesus had followers, John the Baptist had followers. So John has his followers with him, and for the second time he gives the declaration in verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. In verse 29 he has said it already, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There perhaps a public pronouncement for everyone to hear. Now very deliberately he is saying this in the hearing of his two disciples. In verse 37, he wants them to get this. My disciples who are with me, John is saying, I'm saying this for your benefit. There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. It is the Baptist's way of saying to his disciples, there he is. He is the one that you've been looking for. Don't follow me. Follow him. And he said it for a second time to indicate to his followers, John the Baptist, 
talking to his followers. I've been teaching you, I've been instructing you, and now I am telling you, the one you need to follow is right there, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. It was the practice in the ancient world that you would follow, literally walk alongside, perhaps live with, do life with, for a time. It would be weeks, season, it could be weeks for at a time. So when he says, come follow me, it is literally, come walk where I am walking. And they would do this with a teacher or a rabbi, a prophet. So they've been doing that with John. You're huddling around the Baptist. You're, what do you have to teach us? And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And you think about it, as he says this, he means to di direct his own two disciples. You see in verse 38, Jesus turned and he saw them following him. And this is what John the Baptist had in mind. John had said, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God. I am just the voice. He is the word. And they leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. You know, let's pause there. We'll get to what Jesus says in a minute. This is amazing humility. Amazing humility. To send your followers to follow another. To have followers, to have this attention, and to say, I am not the one, behold the Lamb of God. John is putting his money where his mouth is. He's willingly, deliberately, humbly decreasing so that Christ might increase. Now, some of us kind of just fall into that. We may have occasions to be kind of embarrassed that no one is following us anymore, but he does it of his own volition, his own initiative. This is John saying, no everybody who's signing up and standing in the John the Baptist book signing line He's not worth it. Go follow him. Behold the Lamb of God. And we need this, brothers and sisters. No matter who we think we are, especially if you're a younger person, and anyone who's on social media, people building their brand, building their platform, counting their retweets, counting their likes. John the Baptist didn't use his platform to build up his brand, to further his name, but to point to Jesus. John the Baptist used his influence to point to somebody else so much more important and so much more impressive. So all of us, each of you, whether it's power that you hold by virtue of money, or by position, or by influence, or even simply your godly character, how are you using that power, that influence, to lift up Jesus? 
and to do so at the expense of yourself. Because it is one thing to say, I have influence, and I'm going to use this influence to help the little people in life, and you kind of feel good. But what if when you use influence for someone else, you lose it yourself? Because that is what John the Baptist does. Would you? And let me ask myself this question. Would you gladly fade into obscurity if it meant more attention to Jesus? Jesus' first disciples came from John. They were following John. How did Jesus get his initial following? Because John the Baptist in humility said, I am not the point. I'm glad you've learned something, but go follow me. The truly great biblical man or woman will give up their most valuable assets and possessions for the sake of the kingdom. And you know often what our most valuable assets are? People. One of the best and hardest things a church can do is to send away its people. Because it's easier to send money. Have a look at a slightly different application. Parents, what is the hardest thing to let go of? Money? No. Your house? No. Your car? No. Your children? Yes. Let it go. You send out your best. You send your prized possession. The people you love so dearly. And say, go and make a difference for Jesus. Go serve him. Go to the hard places. This is what God did. My son, I sent him to you. John the Baptist is a model, is an example of letting go. Of his influence, of his attention, of his followers, of the people that he had loved and invested in. And instead to say... I'm not the point, he is the point. Brothers and sisters, my dear friend, John the Baptist is a model of humility. And so, they follow Jesus. They literally walk behind him. Because in verse 38 he said, it turns, he turns to them. And now we come to the first recorded word, words in the Gospel of John from the Lord Jesus. Number one, what are you seeking? Because they were searching for something. They'd been followers of John the Baptist, so maybe we can surmise that they were hungry for a prophetic word, maybe. Probably looking for deliverance from Rome. Later they will confess, we found the Messiah. So they're looking for the Christ. Jesus turns and says, what are you seeking? Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that Jesus is always making it harder for people to follow him? He's always making it harder. He's always, always turning and saying, well, let the dead bury the dead. Have you counted the cost? Do you know what it is to have an army? Do you know what it is to build a tower? Do you really want to be here? Are you sure you want to be here? 
which is so different from the way that most churches operate, or my own instincts as a pastor. And do you like us? Would you stay? Can I give you another offering envelope? I'm so glad you're here. But what can we do? And of course we want to be welcoming, we really do. But Jesus wants to make it clear. The church is not a club. Jesus does not need us to follow him. You need a Messiah. You need a Saviour. Jesus said, I'm not here to be popular. I'm not looking to draw a crowd. I want disciples. So Jesus is constantly turning around. Are you sure you want to be here? And Jesus would say the same to us. What are you looking for? Why are you here? Why are you watching? What are you really after? What do you want? We think that Jesus should turn around and say, my first disciples, congratulations. I'm so glad you're here. Nice to meet you. What can I do for you? But Jesus is always saying, are you going to leave everything behind? Do you know what you're getting into? Now Jesus turns to the tables on these would-be disciples and says, what are you looking for? It is a fair question to ask them. It is a fair question to ask you. You probably have some knowledge, some familiarity with Jesus, some acquaintance with him. Maybe you have followed him for years. What are you seeking? Jesus asked the question. John the Evangelist, the writer of his Gospel, the Gospel of John, is different than the Baptist. John the Evangelist put this together for a reason. This isn't a throwaway question. There's a reason that the first words that Jesus, in the Gospel, John records is, what are you seeking? Because that is the question he continues to ask everyone who is following him. What are you looking for? Do you know what you're looking for? Some of us know, some of us are a bit confused. There is a difference in all the world between walking into a a bookshop or a builder's merchant. If I go into a bookshop, I'm confident, I'm on home territory, I'm happy, I know books, I'm with my people, bookish people. If I go to a builder's merchant, I'm like a fish out of water. Can I buy some plaster or something? Or maybe a shower head or a light bulb that goes somewhere? And they ask you questions and I say, I don't know, I don't know what I want. Can I have a screwdriver? And they give me an Allen key. Allen is my friend, it's not my screwdriver. So I don't know what I'm looking for. I just went in there because my wife told me to go and figure it out. And some of you know why you are here, why you are watching. You know what you're looking for. You love Jesus. You want to know more about Jesus. You know that you're a sinner. You want to hear more about the cross, salvation. You want to hear the word. And some of us, why? Well, it's just what we do. I've done it forever. What are you seeking, Jesus says. 
He asked the question of his first followers he would ask again today. Because the Lord Jesus knows how to look right into your heart. What are you hoping to find here? What are you looking for? That's the first thing that Jesus says. What are you looking for? Secondly, come and see. It comes in the next verse, in verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They called him Rabbi, teacher. There are all these titles. We have word, light, life, Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Christ, who he is. And Jesus gives a simple but provocative reply to that question. They say, where are you staying? Jesus, never one to give a simple answer, says, come and see. You had to be thinking, well, Jesus, couldn't you have just said just round the corner? But he said somewhat enigmatically, come and see. You find the same language used elsewhere. John 1, 46, Nathaniel said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? We'll look at that next time. And Philip said, come and see. Philip is saying it, Jesus is saying it. It's a great memory verse. Come and see. Not very hard to memorise that. Come and see. You want to know who Jesus is? Come and see. There is more to the reply than just an open door to see where Jesus is staying overnight. It's an invitation to see what is on the other side of your search. First question, what are you looking for? Second thing he says, come and see. Jesus is wise. They ask the question, where are you staying? He says, come and see. Do you really want to know? Are you really interested? Do you really want to get to know Jesus? But how about you? Are you willing to find out who Jesus is and what that means for you? Jesus has abundant patience for all those who come to him with their eyes wide open. But he will, be, he will give a stiff arm to those who have hard hearts and are merely looking to trap him or trip him up. Only you and the Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows. Some ask questions and they are good questions. They are honest and God has so much patience with good, honest questions, no matter how hard the question is. The Psalms are full of hard questions. But God sees your heart. Jesus does it all the time in the Gospels. The person who says, Jesus, now get me out of this trap. You can't trap Jesus. Do you really want to know who Jesus is? Have you ever really followed him? I mean really follow me, not just go to church, but to say whatever it costs me, whatever it costs me, I want to come and see. Have you really ever investigated the claims of Jesus? I mean that. Have you ever taken time to investigate the claims of Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked yourself, is the Bible true? Did the Lord Jesus really rise from the dead? Do right and wrong exist? 
How do I explain my conscience? And what do you do that, that hole in your soul that can't be filled by your smartphone? And what is your answer for evil in the world? What is your answer for evil in you? How do you explain the deadness in your own heart? Jesus says, come and see. He could have said, bow up my feet, words. He would have had a right to do, but he simply issues an invitation. What are you looking for? Come and see. Do you really want to know who Jesus is? Do you really want to get to know him? Or are you just throwing up clever smoke screens, throwing out questions, and ultimately because you want to push him away? He gets that, come and see. And then he says one more thing, verse 42. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now they call him Andrew and Peter seems strange, how does it square with the other syn syn synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke? And people often comment that Matthew, Mark and Luke seem to be telling one story, but they seem to have the same kind of theme, but John is somewhat different. If you go to Mark 1 and you read the calling of Andrew and Peter, it seems different. Uh, just, just turn there if you wouldn't mind. Mark 1 and verse 16, uh, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. This seems different. They're fishing the Sea of Galilee. They're with their nets. Jesus calls them by name. And Jesus says, come follow me. They leave everything and go. Whereas here, in John, Andrew's following John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew follows him and then finds Simon and brings him to Jesus. So which is it? Well, we believe that all scripture is inspired and has authority and when we think about it the accounts are not contradictory they're complementary they make sense one of the other in john 1 is not the calling into the apostolic office but the story of the initial association how did jesus first meet andrew and simon peter and when you think about it, this makes historic sense. Because in the Synoptic Gospels, they're in their fishing boats. And Jesus just says, Andrew, follow me. Now, it could have been a miracle, but it hardly makes sense, or it seems historically plausible, that they were just looking out from their boat and said, oh, Do you know who that, who, who that man is over there? No, I don't know. I haven't seen him before in my life. Well, he's yelling at us. Okay. See you later. Dad. And off they go. Now, it makes much more sense if you understand that they had had association with Jesus. They had already followed him for some indeterminate time. So when later the Synoptic Gospels record the calling, 
Jesus is saying, will you be my disciples? They leave everything and say, yes, we're going to follow you. The stories complement each other. John 1 is how they establish their connection with Jesus. The identity of Andrew is kept hidden until verse 40. And first we just read two disciples, verse 37, we're not told first who they are. John 1 verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And it tells you something about the audience that must have been hearing this gospel for the first time. That they were somewhat aware of the story about Jesus because he references Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now they would be more familiar with Peter than they would be with Andrew. But Andrew is the first one brought to Jesus as John the Baptist leads him there. No one mentions who the second disciple is. Two disciples, one is Andrew. The second, and I believe, of the church, this is John the Evangelist who wrote the Gospel. There will be later on a reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John referring to himself. He's not wanting to insert himself into the story. He keeps his identity anonymous here. It seems most likely, because look at verse 41, when Andrew found his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah. There's someone else who's joining in with Andrew here. Andrew and the other disciples, because you notice the kind of detail here. And clearly, someone writing this must have either had direct access to the eyewitness or himself be the eyewitness. Because he even says in verse 39, they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Who wrote this, the person who wrote this knew that they went to the Lord's house at 4pm in the afternoon. That would make sense if he was the one writing it, John the Evangelist, who was the one with Andrew, the other disciple of the Baptist, who is now walking with Jesus. And Jesus then meets Peter, Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus said to him, You are Simon the son of John, you shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. We're going to find where, whenever you find, come across Andrew, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He's a great example. He brings his brother, Simon the son of John. Jesus said, I have a new name for you. And that happens so often in the Bible. Abraham. Abraham, father of many nations. Jacob, Israel, from trickster to striving with God. Well, here is welcome to the rock man. Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Peter was not a proper name at this point in ancient times. We know Peter as one of the most common names, but Peter was a nickname. This is Jesus said, Simon, I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to tell you who you are and who you will be. And of course, you're familiar with the Gospels. You know that Simon Peter is anything but rock steady. He is fundamentally unsteady. He walks on the water and sinks. He says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And then he does not understand what sort of Christ it is. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Peter is the one who said, I will stick with you no matter what. This is Peter. Impetuous Peter. Is anything but rock steady? It could be, I believe, Jesus is saying what he knows will happen. It says later in chapter 2 that Jesus knew what was in man so he can see what Peter will become. And it is so much more than a prediction, it is a calling. Simon, let me tell you who you will be when you come to Christ. You get a new name. You are now a little Christian, a little Christ. You are a saint, a holy one. You are a son or a daughter. And when you come to Jesus, he gives you a new name. So here is the question. What is Jesus calling you to become that you have not yet become? Brothers and sisters, Simon, Peter, was not defined by his sin. He was defined by whom Jesus said he would be. What is Jesus calling you to be that you have not yet become? Because Jesus said, Simon, I'm going to call you the rock, and he was anything but a rock. You see what John is doing in laying out these three statements from Jesus? It is absolutely brilliant. And it is a picture of discipleship, not only then, but now. So if you're sort of interested in Jesus, you're sort of hanging around the edges, you're sort of curious about him, Jesus says, what are you seeking? And if you're really interested, then Jesus says, come and see. And then he calls you to himself, and he not only calls you, but he names you. And when Jesus calls you, he will change you. Jesus calls you to save you, he calls you to change you. And if you're thinking that you'll come to Jesus and he will leave you alone, you've come to the wrong Jesus. Jesus, the one who saves, is the one who changes. He will not leave you alone, and that is good news. Not only does he want to change you, he alone can change you. He calls Simon, who is slippery, impetuous, crazy, unsteady, sinking Simon, and says, you are going to be my rock, my steady one. What is God calling you? Maybe you read it in the Bible. Maybe you have a sense of it well enough in you and you think, well I could never do that. I could never be a preacher. I could never be a missionary. I could never be a pastor. I could never be a faithful parent. I do not know I can be if I can be faithful at school. I don't know if I can be the kind of Christian that God needs me to be at work. What is God calling you to be? that you do not think you can become because that is what Jesus did for Simon. This is amazing. This is the beginning of the New Testament church. There are Bible churches all over the world, praise God. And it started with Simon. I call you Peter. And John the Baptist saying, Andrew, John, follow him. He just got two, three men. He had two brothers. Next passage, you'll get two more. And that is the beginning of the church, which is now on every continent, or in almost every country. 
It has been the dominant influence in Western civilization for 1,700 years. It doesn't look like much. Your life may not, not look like much. Jesus finds two fishermen, two brothers, the disciple to be named later. But when Jesus calls, when Jesus calls, he promises to show you things that you have not seen and to make you into things you have not been. For his glory. Amen.